Well, this is a phrase that is stated eight times in just a handful of chapters of Ezekiel that you have the Lord say, then you will know that I am the Lord. And that's a pretty dramatic statement, especially when you're talking to God's people who presumably know the Lord and know who the Lord is. It's quite fascinating to consider that God feels like he would need to come to his people and say, I need you to know who I am, and I'm going to do certain things so that you will understand that. And that's what we're going to look at this evening is, what does God want his people to know about him? What is God accomplishing so that they would have this consideration and concept of him to live in ways that are proper before him? Remember in Ezekiel, we have the exiles and they are in Babylon. They've been exiled uh, because of their sinning against God. And yet God is going to reveal through this book and throughout this prophecy that he is going to be changing their hearts because a remnant is going to ultimately come from them. But these messages about who God is then is the important basis and framework by which he's going to move and motivate these hearts to come and and follow him. And so what we're going to notice in chapters four and five are four pictures that Ezekiel is going to provide of a coming judgment. And then in chapters six and seven, God is going to say, and here's what I wanted you to know by that. So that's our frame for the book. Four pictures of, of judgment, and then God's going to say, and here's why I did that, so that you would learn these important characteristics about me. Chapter 4, and you'll notice we don't have time to read through this section. If I read through this and chapter 6 and 7, you'd have to get a tent out. So we'll have to summarize some of this. But the first three, these pictures are great. I hope you'll take a chance to go back and read these, these pictures. Four amazing pictures. First picture is given in chapter 4 in the first three verses where God comes to Ezekiel and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a brick and I want you to write the name Jerusalem on it and I want you to set it down and then I want you to build up a bunch of siege works and battering rams and put a wall up that's made of iron and then I want you to stare at it. <laughs> and here's what that means. Uh, I am against you and my face is towards you in judgment. And so you can imagine this image as here is Ezekiel and he's out among the people and he's playing in the dirt and he's got a brick and it says Jerusalem and he's got battering rams moving around. And it says, and you build up the sage works and build a wall and put the iron thing right there. And he sits there and stares at it. He had to look like a child playing in the dirt and everybody's watching him moving all these pieces around trying to communicate this first picture that Jerusalem is going to be put under siege. And it is going to fall because God's face is against the city of Jerusalem. The next picture is also fascinating. In verses 4 through 8, now God comes to Ezekiel and says, Second picture I want to give you. I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days. And I want you to do that to represent the 390 years of the transgressions of Israel. And then when that's done, I want you to lay on your right side for 40 days which will represent the 400, the 40, the 40 years of the wickedness of Judah. Now, that is a certainly strange picture. And one of the things that's hard to figure out is, okay, well, what are these years representing? Why 390 years? Why 40 years? Why say Israel and also say Judah? One of the things that I think is useful to consider is that throughout the book of Ezekiel, you're going to notice that 
the term Israel and the term Judah are used interchangeably. And I think that's important because where we are in Ezekiel's day, there is not an Israel. Israel has been wiped out over 120 years ago and prior. They've already been taken off the land and scattered. That happened around 722 BC. It's now 597 BC. And so saying we're going to deal with 390 years of Israel and 40 years of, of Judah sinning allows a lot of you to wonder, well, what exactly are you pointing at? I believe the 390 years would be probably best represented as depicting the sum total of Israel's rebellion. If you think about where Ezekiel is in time and you put 390 years back on the clock, that puts you back into the reign of Solomon. And as you know, that's pretty much the teetering point of when the kingdom completely uh, splinters as Solomon turns away from God, the kingdom divides, and it is all kinds of rebellion and sin. So the 390 years probably is just looking at and saying, ever since kings were put on the throne, Israel has been in complete rebellion against God. Which then leads to an important question, well then why the 40 years? If, if 390 represents the sum history of Israel's rebellion from essentially start to finish, why then turn over on your other side and do 40 years? If you speak of 40 years in Israel's history, what typically comes to mind? But the wilderness wanderings, right? The, the 40 years of punishment for their sin and rebellion in the wilderness. And you might wonder, well why bring that up except... Though the 40 years were a time of rebellion and a time of punishment, the 40 years also had a subtle hope. You might remember the people in that 40-year rebellion, before they were going to go in the land, they basically said to God, we would rather die in the wilderness than go up and conquer these, these giants. They're going to destroy us. And God said, okay, wish granted. You will die in the wilderness and your next generation they will be the ones to go in and enter. And I think there is a picture here of that, is that, yes, they are being punished for their sins, but there is going to be a glimmer of hope to these people that the next generation is going to be allowed to come back. And they're going to be part of this remnant. They're going to be the ones who are going to return and be able to give, be given this new opportunity. And to me, that makes the most sense of why the 390 and why the 40. And imagine what that would have looked like to the people. Here he is, he does some siege works and he's got the city and he's playing with that and showing the war going on in Jerusalem. And then he goes and lays on his side. Day two, go out there, play with it. Go lay on your side for 390 days, over a year, ends up going back and laying on his left side again. And then how strange it would have been to watch him after the 390th day to go back into his place and then lay on his right side. And everybody'd be like, okay, now you switch. Now you're on the other side. And for 40 days, he ultimately then does that. And so I believe then this is picturing that Ezekiel is bearing the punishment of the people of their great totality of their sinning against God, but the glimmer of hope that would come after that. The third picture that is given in verses 9 through 17 of chapter 4 is also a fascinating picture because it ultimately describes the horror of what is going to happen uh, during this siege. Uh, Ezekiel is told to make this bread and he's to make it with these particular items, but he's only going to have just a little bit. He has to measure out water 
and measure out this bread. And then he's going to take that bread and cook it over human dung to symbolize the horror of what's going to happen when the Babylonians attack, that you will be on meager rations of bread and water. Now, what is so interesting is that Ezekiel kind of throws his hand in the air and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Human dung is defiling, according to the law. You can't ask me to do that. Remember, Ezekiel's a priest. He's just turned 30 and would have been put into service. He's a priest before God. And he just kind of goes, human dung is out. That is so defiling. That can't be. And God allows him goes, okay, you can cook it over cow dung instead. I'll grant that to you instead of human dung. There you go. Which, as an aside, I... Does the Ezekiel bread say they cook it that way? Just wondering today, if you go to the store, does that put that on there? That's part of the process. Just, you might want to check if we're going to be legit to Ezekiel bread. There it is. Then that was representing that horror of how things were going to go. In fact, it was going to be so bad that chapter five, it goes on to describe this outcome of how terrible it's going to be. It's going to talk about how they will eat their own family members because there's going to be such a lack of food. It is going to just be just a nightmare to be in that city when this siege goes on. And Ezekiel's supposed to picture this with a fourth image. What he's supposed to do is he takes a sharp razor and he cuts the hairs off his beard and cuts the hairs off his head, which of course is a symbol of shame, a symbol of mourning. And he's supposed to gather all those hairs. So you can imagine here he cuts those hairs and he's just holding them all together. And he, and he tells Ezekiel, now here's what I want you to do before the people. I want you to take one third of those hairs and just throw them in a fire and just burn them. And you just watch him take a third and go throw them in the fire. And then God says, now with the next third of those hairs, what I want you to do is take a sword. And I want you to swat at him with the sword. So you can imagine him taking the hairs. And I don't know if he threw it in the air and just kind of then take a sword. Up. All right. Third of you are going to be taken by fire. Third of you are going to be dealt with by the sword. And then he takes the other third. He's supposed to throw it to the wind. And this is to be a representation of what this is going to look like for the people. But interestingly, then God says, but I want you to hold back just a few of your hairs and I want you to hold them in your pocket. There's going to be a few of those hairs that you're going to keep in your pocket. But then he turns around and says, now pull some of those out and also do it to them too. It's just going to be just a slight few of people who are going to be preserved through this judgment. That you were either going to die by famine and pestilence, you were going to die by sword, or you were going to be captured and scattered. That's what's going to happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so you get this, this serious picture of judgment. And sometimes what happens for us as the modern reader, and we read the prophets, we can have the tendency to just think, well, okay, it's judgment after judgment after judgment. Okay, it's bad. It's going to be awful. Move on and all that. But never do that because God has reasoning behind that. And that's what he's now going to show us in chapter six is I want to tell you a, a message. I want you to listen closely as to why I am doing this so that you will understand something about who I am. And so notice chapter six and begin in verse one with me. Chapter six, verse one, the word of the Lord came to me, mortal, Set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altar shall become desolate. 
and your incense altar shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed. Your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. Interesting kickoff up to this. And I want you to think about what God says as to why these vicious images of judgment. Notice what he depicts. He says, I'm going to have this happen so that your high places are destroyed and your altars are destroyed and all of these places of worship are destroyed. I'm going to destroy the thing that you worship. And I think that is an interesting picture about God saying, then you will know that I am the Lord. That this is a characteristic of God, is that God destroys the things that we worship in this world and in this life. This was one of the most fascinating takeaways that I had on my summer vacation. I was able to go to a variety of these ancient cities. And I'm going to throw a few pictures of the idea of what I saw every single place. Because it communicated this great truth. At the Roman Forum, this is a place where there were all kinds of altars and all kinds of idols and temples of worship. Guess how many are still there? There's just dirt and a few stones there's nothing left in pompeii here is this huge temple that was to the gods and here's all that's left but the stairs there's nothing left god has wiped out their gods going to ephesus it was just amazing stones as far as the eye could see of all the various temples and places of worship and altars All of them torn down. Even in Athens, and I'm going to show you two pictures because this might look like, oh, it's still intact. Here's one of the places of worship that's still intact. But if you can tell on the screen on the backside, they're putting it back together. They're trying to restore it so that you can see what it used to look like because it used to be all in pieces laid on the ground, even in Athens of all of their gods. We went to Corinth. Guess what it looks like in Corinth? And then to a a town just to the east of Corinth, another temple. God destroys the thing we worship. I got done with that and I looked at all of these places and I thought, did God make a point about human idols and human altars and temples and places of sacrifice? There's none of it left. And this is the thing that God is saying is, You want to worship your idols and worship your gods? Guess what I do? I destroy those things. I break them in pieces. I try to show you that your idols are absolutely worthless and nonsense to follow. 
And of course, in 2022, what we do is we go, well, it's a good thing we don't have idols. We certainly don't have temples and we don't have stone statues and we don't have altars. We don't worship physical things today, right? We would never be so foolish as to give ourselves over to possessions and wealth and job and career and things like that. We have learned the idolatry lesson. God destroys the thing you prize. And he will rip out of your hands the things you worship so that you will know that I am the Lord. And that's what God is communicating to Ezekiel. And it is what the New Testament is trying to tell us. Think about when the Apostle Peter writes and he talks about how we suffer through trials. And he uses an image here of faith being refined like precious metals are refined in fire. And I'll I'll just let you answer this yourself. What does God have to refine out of us? But the idolatry. The things that we prize and treasure as more valuable than him. What else is being ripped out of our hearts? What else is he purifying? What else is he having to purge from our lives? Except all the things we put our hope and trust in. All the things in this world that we put to such a high value. He puts us in trials so that those things will be taken out from us. And so God is destroying what we put our hope in. God is destroying what we put our trust in. And he's doing this for our own good. And thus you see that in those first seven verses where he says, I'm going to just have your altar strewn all over the place. And I'm going to have temples torn down. And I'm going to have your high places ripped down so that you will have a very important concept. There is one God and everything else is a facade. Everything else is a sham. I am the true God. But the other side of that coin also exists that is being taught to us here. The other side of that, I think, is is just as important because not only is God saying, I will destroy the thing you worship. But we destroy ourselves by worshiping those things. Did you notice the imagery? Notice that God did not say, I'm going to tear down your idols and then you'll know I'm the Lord. Did you notice where their bodies were going to be? In front of the torn down idols and altars and high places and temples. There's a visual that God was making. You are destroying yourself when you depend upon idols and physical things and false gods. And so he gives that picture there in verse 5. When he says, I'll lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel in front of your idols. Do you see the picture? Here is this idol and the dead bodies laid there. What's God saying? How well did your idol care for you? Did it protect you? Did it help you? Did it provide for you? Did it care for you? Did it save you? No. It was a visual to help the people know. You're only destroying yourself when you put your hope and you put your trust in these false things. In fact, I want you to notice that that picture really uh, comes in strong in the back end of chapter 7. Notice in chapter 7 and in verse 14. 
Chapter 7, verse 14, they've blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle for my wrath is upon their multitude. No, if you think you're going to put your hope in your army, that's not going to work. Sound the trumpet, your people are going to lose. You know, sometimes we do that. Oh, well, we're really strong. We're a mighty nation. We have a great army. God goes, I don't care. Don't put your hope in that. Don't think I can't overcome that if that's my will. I'll raise up the Babylonians and destroy your army. And that's the picture that he gives in, in verse 14. Notice he continues that, that picture um, down even a little bit further in verse 19. When he says, they will cast their silver into the streets and their gold into the streets like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. The, the judgment's going to come and you're going to have all of your wealth. And how well is your wealth going to care for you in the day of judgment? He says, you're going to throw in the streets as nothing. You know, we get little pictures of that every once in a while. You know, every once in a while we'll have something bad happen, you know, storm, something like that. Some difficulty arises and you know, your cash is useless, right? Right. It's always great after a hurricane. There's no power and there's no food and Publix is closed and you can't get anything. Well, how's your cash doing for you? What's that buying? Nothing. And that's what he's saying. You're going to have all this gold and silver that you put all your hope and trust in. You're going to throw it in the street because it's going to be completely useless. God says, I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to make sure that all of your hope and your economic and prosperous nation is going to be useless to you. And so that's his point in verse 19. He even pushes it further in verse 19. And he says, not only are their silver or gold not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord, they cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. You know how many times God tries to say, the only reason you can have satisfaction is because I give it to you. And if I want to take that away from you, I will. You're going to have all that gold and silver and it's not going to matter. And it's not even going to allow you to satisfy your hunger. You are going to be unsatisfied people. Because you've turned your back on the one who satisfies. The one who gives you life and satisfaction and joy. He says, you've turned your back on me, so I'm going to show you what life is like without it. In fact, you'll notice he does this again in verse 21. He says, I will give into give it into the hands, speaking of their wealth, I will give it into the hands of the foreigners for prey. And to the wicked, the earth for their earth spoil, for they profane it. And I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. And robbers shall enter and profane it. He says, I'm just going to give all your wealth to somebody else. He says, your invaders are going to come, and they're going to take it. I'm going to let them have it. You know, God did that before. He did that to the Canaanites and allowed the Israelites to take it. And now he says, okay, Israel, since you don't trust me, I'll let the Babylonians take it. So that you will know that I am... The Lord. The same picture even happens in verses 22 and 23, where he talks about he's going to allow violence to roam through the land. In verse 25, he says, When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will be upon disaster. What God is trying to say is, I'm the reason why you have peace. I'm the reason why you have satisfaction. I'm the reason you have joy. I'm the reason you have prosperity. I'm the reason you have everything that you enjoy. And since you turned your back on me, I need you to see that I'm the Lord. And so that's the picture that he's drawing for them. 
Now, as he brings all that together, I want us to think about that this idea of what God wants them to know. What does God want them to know? And I'm going to submit to you there is one big key truth with five some points, sub points that undergird that one key truth. God is a, a one big thread through this. And he's going to support it with five things. So he says, you will know who I am in this. Here's the big idea. God is broken by our idolatry. Notice chapter 6 and verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. Then I will leave some of you alive. And when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you have scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they were carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. I would think sometimes we can miss this really important truth. I think sometimes we just think of sin as law-breaking only. You know, like the speed limit's 35, I went 37, no harm, no foul, who cares? Okay, I broke the law, but what's the big deal, God? And I want you to get a sense that that's not how God looks at his laws. God does not say, you know, I put forward a pile of laws and I was really hoping you'd follow them and I'm kind of bummed out that you didn't do it, but it sure be nice if you did what I said. No, here's how God perceives this. He says, when you don't listen to me and you don't listen to my laws, it's devastating. You break my heart is what he says. What a visual that he gives right here, that you are breaking the heart of God, that it's not just neutral, random laws, but these laws of God represent his character. It represents who he is and our willful choosing to go after idols and desire other things. It says it breaks his heart. In fact, what a picture. And it says that he is broken over the heart that has departed from me and their eyes that go looking after everything else. Think about that image. I'm broken by the fact that I don't have your heart. And your eyes are looking everywhere else but to me. I mean, put that into marriage terms for a minute and, and get a sense of that. How would you like it if you were found out that your spouse would rather be anywhere else but with you? Or to put it even more succinctly, your spouse would rather be with anyone else but you. That's what God is saying. Your heart and your eyes are everywhere else. And I'm broken by that. That you don't desire me. That you don't want to spend time with me. That you don't want to have my love. That you don't have a passion for me. Our sinning devastates God. 
It's not a God who doesn't care about us, but is deeply invested in a relationship with us so that he repeatedly uses marriage terminology to try to communicate to us this kind of relationship and why he calls it adultery when we turn away from him. Because it's not nothing to him. He's broken by it. And that is the big thing that God wants us to know. And the big thing he's communicating in judgment is you have no idea how much you have broken your father in heaven when your heart and your eyes stray after everything else and have no passion and no desire for him. Now, I said there were five key truths that hang on that idea that are found throughout the book of Ezekiel. Let's let's go through them quickly. Number one, he wants them to know that he gave you everything and you threw it away. You see that in chapter five, where he's talking about, you've had all that economic prosperity. You have your silver and your gold. You have all these things. And he says, I'm going to take it all away from you. I was giving you all of your blessings, but because you didn't look to me, but looked everywhere else, I'm going to take it away from you. You had it all. But rather than looking to me for your satisfaction and joy and comfort and prosperity and blessings, you look for it elsewhere. And so I just took it away from you so that you will know that I'm the Lord who gives everything and can also take everything away. God God warned that in the book of Deuteronomy, didn't he? Deuteronomy chapter 8, he warned them when you come into the land, don't go into the land and have all that wealth and think, oh, it's by my might and by my power. And by, he says, you better remember that you have what you have because I'm giving it to you, because I'm blessing you. I'm the reason for your wealth. Don't forget that it's me. Oh, how easy it is to forget. And how easy it is to attribute it to idols. The idol of self, the idol of career and the idol of wealth and we attribute it to everything else and don't see that it is God who gives us everything and we're choosing to throw that away in our idolatry number two repeatedly God says at least three times just in those four verses that you will know that God keeps his word now why is that so important because Duration of time and God's patience make us think that he's not going to carry out his judgment warnings. Israel's been told for a really long time to quit the idolatry. Hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, remember Joshua stood up and said in chapter 24 in his great speech, you can't serve the Lord. Because you've got all these idols. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they go, oh yeah, we'll serve the Lord. And he says, you can't because you won't get rid of your idols. And we can allow all that time to think, oh, well, God's not going to do something about it. I don't need to make any changes. You know, time goes on. And we fool ourselves into thinking that time and God's patience means that there's not going to be a judgment for idolatry. And so, friends, if he promises judgment then judgment is coming. And he wants us to take his word seriously because he always does what he says. And these pictures here remind us of that. He always follows through with what he says. I want you to know that I always keep my word. 
closely with that in chapter 7 in those first nine verses, I want you to know that I always judge sin. I want you to know that I judge sin. Judgment is to show us and warn us that God will always deal with sin. The Apostle Paul said we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I always find that should just be frightening words. I don't want to stand before God and be judged for everything that was done in the flesh. I need an advocate. I need mercy. I need somebody to intervene. I need a mediator and I need it fast. Because judgment's going to come for the actions that we've committed. Don't think that God will not judge sin. He said he will. And he says, I want you to know that I do that very thing. Number four, God wants you to know that he's the only giver of satisfaction and peace. He takes their prosperity, he says, he turns it into anxiety. He says, I'll take your prosperity and make it anxiety in a heartbeat. I will make disaster follow disaster there in chapter 7, he said. These events were to try to get the people of Israel to know that God is the only place to find satisfaction and find uh, peace, which ultimately drives that you'll know that God's your only hope. In all that God was going to do for these people, he made it clear chapter after chapter after chapter. No one can help you but God. Your wealth will not help you. Your career will not help you. Your status will not help you. Your possessions will not help you. Your notoriety will not help you. Who you know in this world will not help you. None of it is going to help you. God is your only hope. So I want to leave you just with one thought then tonight. And your one thought is this. You can either know the Lord in love or know the Lord in judgment. That's the message. He says, now you're going to know the Lord. Eight times after describing vivid judgment imagery, then you will know why I am the Lord. And so we have a choice. You're going to know God one way or another. You have a choice how you're going to get to know God. You can know a God through his blessings and through his benefits so that you can appreciate all that he's done and rest in the grace that's found in Jesus. Or you can get to know God through suffering and judgment as he breaks the idols out of our lives and ultimately makes us stand before him in judgment, giving an account for everything that we've done in the flesh, every word that we've said, and every act that we've committed. Apostle Paul reminded us, God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. And this is a vivid picture of it. And I just want to ask, can you imagine, can you imagine losing your soul for all of eternity with all of the rich blessings That we will enjoy being in the presence of God. Simply because we wanted to follow our own passions and desires now. I mean, just think about the cost analysis. Is it worth our souls to be able to have some temporary pleasures here in this world? God wants you to know he's broken. 
And God wants you to know he keeps his word. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is quite a picture to remind us about your heart for us. And Lord, it can be easy to forget how deeply you want a relationship with us and how deeply our sinning wounds the relationship that we have. Lord, I pray that you would be causing it to be ever mindful into our hearts and into our minds what we are doing to ourselves in our sinning and our idolatry and what we are doing to you through those sins and idolatry. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and strength and boldness to identify the idols in our hearts. Help us to identify the people and things that we put our hope and trust in. Expose it to our eyes and eradicate that dependency so that we, Lord, just depend upon you. Lord, forgive us for our idols. Forgive us for how we seek after the things of this world. Forgive us for how we forget that you give us everything. Forgive us for thinking that our idolatry is anything. And help us to remember that is you and only you that is our hope, that's our joy and our satisfaction. Lord, we know that every physical blessing comes from you, that we are able to enjoy these wonderful things only because of you. You have given us great prosperity in this country. And Lord, we know that is only because of you. And Lord, I pray that not only us, but as a country as a whole, we would turn our eyes to you and realize that you have done wondrous things for us. And help us to see that the reason we are is because you cause us to be here. Thank you for your mercy and long-suffering. And we thank you for your son that covers our sins so that we can safely stand before you on the day of judgment without blemish, clean and whole in your sight. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're singing invitation song. We invite you to think about where you are with God. And tonight might be a good night to purge the idols that may be still holding on inside of the heart and the eyes that cause us to stray away. Can we help you in any way to come to the Lord this very evening to turn away from sins? If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to start that relationship with him, tonight's the night to do that. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?